ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ma'elim Adonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Norate Hilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu le totafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Wow. 
Stop! 
Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Line of Line Ministries. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Uh, we are in the book of Deuteronomy and this Sabbath, and in fact, our portion comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning at verse 23, and it's in the Hebrews of Hectanon, which means I also pleaded, or I pleaded with God. And this is when Moses is recounting that uh, when he went to strike the rock to get water from it, God had told him to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock. And as a result, he lost his ticket to the promised land. Uh, God said to Moses, because you did not believe me, uh, and you got to ask yourself, my gosh, I mean, if there was one guy that did believe in God, surely it was Moses. But what God was referring to is the belief that God is describing is where you hear what God says, and then you do that. If you hear what God said, and you don't do what he said, then God says, you didn't believe me. And by the way, that's a very frightening definition for what belief really is, because we have a lot of folks running around who give testimony that they believe in the Messiah, they believe in God, and yet the evidence is stacked up against them that they don't do what the Lord says. Now, it's not my definition of what belief is, is it's God's definition. And if God's definition is so powerful and so strong, so as that Moses loses his ticket to the promised land, we should stand up and take note, what is God's definition of believing in him? Uh, in any case, Moses said, I pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord did not relent on this point. And I think the reason why the Lord didn't relent is because he wants all of us to learn this incredible lesson that believing in God is based on you do what God says. And, uh, you know, that's where faith comes from. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the Word of God. It comes from believing the promises, believing the things the Lord has said. That's the faith that is counted as righteousness. That's the faith that Abraham had. That's the faith that we're supposed to have. Um, Yeshua in John 3.16 said, you know, if you believe that my Father sent me, that I was sent, you believe the promise. God said he would send us a Messiah. You believe that, you act on that, and you accept the, the promise that God did. That, that's the belief that leads to eternal life. If you fail to 
listen to the Lord and not obey him, you just gave the evidence that you don't believe in him. And the apostle John in his letter said, if you say you know him and yet you do not keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And so here we have uh, Moses pleading because God said to him, you didn't do what I said, so you don't believe me. You didn't believe me. And if you don't believe me, you're not going into the promised land. Very fundamental lesson for us all to take from here. Now, our portion continues on where Moses is recounting in this Torah portion some of the other things that transpired. And again, he focuses in, just like what I've said, he focuses in on urging his brethren to obey what God has said, obey his commandments, obey his laws, and so forth. Let me take you to verse 8 of uh, chapter, excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 4 in our portion where it says, only give heed to yourself, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart with your heart, from your heart, all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and when the Lord said, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn uh, to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. And he goes on to say about the experience at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. He said, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountains burned with fire, to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, clouds, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form, only a voice. And God is emphasizing, and Moses is specifically emphasizing, you got all of this by simply listening to the voice of God. Yes, the mountain was on fire, but that's not the reason why you believe. That's not the reason why you're going to obey because the mountain was on fire. That was history. We, we don't see a mountain on fire today. You know, the mountain's not on fire today, but we can still hear the voice. We can, we have, we have, we know what God said. And in fact, in the rest of this portion, he goes into chapter five and guess what he does? He repeats the Ten Commandments. He repeats what God said. And he's reminding us, this is what we heard. These are the commandments that God spoke. And the whole portion is emphasizing that you do well if you would focus on that and pay attention to what God has said and do what God has said. Now, that is not theology. We're not, we're not talking about theology here. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about did you hear what he said? Do, are you going to act on it? Do you believe in him? Now, if you fear the Lord and you recognize who he is and you want to hold to what he said, then you believe in him. But if you ignore what he said and you want to do something else, then obviously you don't believe in him. If you get confused and somebody else misdirects you or misleads you 
into not listening to what the Lord said, but they give you a substitute. They claim that God said such and such, and but it's not what God said. I don't care if your excuse is that you were misled. The fact is you didn't believe in the Lord. Believing in the Lord is doing what the Lord said. Failing to do so is unbelief. All right? It's very simple, very fundamental to us in the faith. Now, with that said and reminding us of what the uh, Torah portion is, I want to take you to our Haftor portion, which goes with this week. And this uh, week, the Haftor portion that goes with this comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And I need to do something very special for you to explain this Sabbath and the next six Sabbaths that will follow. Uh, these are called the Haftors of Consolation. There is, for the next seven Sabbaths, we're going to hear from each of the Torah portions. They're all going to come from Isaiah, by the way. We're going to hear this little hermeneutical uh, sermon. In fact, it's the oldest sermon that is known to exist from anybody preaching the Bible. They're going to take key verses from these portions, and they're going to have a little thread, and let me just summarize, introduce it to you very quickly. It's going to have the message, comfort my people, and then the people are going to complain that they've been cut off from the Lord, that they've been scattered. And they're going to say, the Lord has abandoned them. And then the Lord is going to say, no, I've not abandoned you. A yes, I punished you, but now I'm going to deliver you. And that is the message of this Haftors of Consolation that goes through the next, this week, and the next six Sabbaths teaching that sermon. Now, it's going to take these different portions um, that is uh, here in Isaiah. Let me also add that these portions in Isaiah are the primary passages that are quoted by Yeshua and the apostles in the New Testament trying to explain to you a lot of New Testament concepts about how the Messiah's redemption works. And he's going to make quotes out of these same passages. So we're talking about a very powerful set of Haftors that we're beginning this week, the Haftors of Consolation. It's going to lead all the way to in the New Testament, if you'll recall, uh, there was a man when Yeshua was first taken as a child to the temple for the first time. It's going to lead all the way to a, uh, a man named Simeon very devout man, and he'd been in the temple. He was hoping to see the Messiah, and in fact, the Holy Spirit had told him that he would not close his eyes on death until he had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. Well, when Yeshua was brought in by Joseph and Mary, he took the child, held it up, and he proclaimed that he, he, he you know, God had answered his prayer request and that he had seen the Messiah, and he prophesied over the child. One of the things that it says of him, that he was a devout man, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. That phrase, 
the consolation of Israel. That's what the Haftors of Consolation are all about. Simeon had heard this teaching before. This is an ancient teaching. And it led him to look and anticipate the coming of the Messiah. Now, there was also a woman that was in the temple. And she had been in the temple since the time that she'd become a widow. And it said of her that she was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, that phrase is normally coupled in the book of Isaiah into the following phrase, the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. They're the same thing. Those two phrases are, again, talking about these haftors of consolation, this particular teaching in Isaiah that we're going to see for this week and for the next six weeks. That is what you're supposed to be getting out of these haftors. That's what's supposed to be, if you do a study on Isaiah, that's what you're supposed to get. By the way, just to put a shameless plug in for the ministry, uh, I have taught the last 27 chapters of Isaiah. I have a specific set of uh, discs and programs that go in verse by verse detailing these passages, these last 27 chapters of Isaiah, to speak to the issue that I've just mentioned. If you want additional material and want to study the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, then you might want to be interested in the study that did in Isaiah uh, that we have available uh, through the ministry. So I'll, I'll put that quick plug in uh, for, that, uh, for that. Let me take you now to um, Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to dive in here just a little bit because there's some very fascinating things that Isaiah is going to say in this 40th chapter, and we're going to go through this just a little bit. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning of verse 1, it says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now, what is that? That sounds like a wonderful thing. What, what is he talking about? He's talking about when this whole business that's been going on with Israel being formed as a nation, receiving the covenant, being delivered out of Egypt, um, going into the land, not obeying the Lord, getting kicked out of the land, being brought back and being delivered, and the Messiah comes at the end of the ages and the kingdom is established. This is a verse describing right at the end, just before the kingdom gets established, this is what's to happen. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Bring them back from all the trauma, all the trials and tribulations that they've been at before. Bring them back, comfort them. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Uh, and he goes on to say, your iniquity has been removed. You have received redemption. You've received the forgiveness of sins. And, and, and your previous punishment that you had to endure for your disobedience, it has been completed. There's no more punishment anymore. Just forgiveness and now to be comforted, to be part of God's kingdom. You're not getting a big reward. It's just that all of the judgment that was going against you has now ended. 
Um, one of the ways I try to explain what is the benefit of this verse is, you know that feeling that you get the moment the ball-peen hammer stops hitting you in the head? That incredible, wonderful feeling of not getting your head banged again. It's actually a wonderful feeling, you know, when suddenly that concussion on your head stops. And that's kind of what this verse is about. This, this good thing, you feel comforted. You, you, this is better than what I had before. And that's what the verse is trying to explain. Now, the chapter 40 is going to do a shift. Now, obviously, the way this gets done is by God's redemption, the work of the Messiah. So verse chapter 40, verse 3 says the following. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become plain and the rugged train a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, you've heard some of this word before. And in fact, these are the words that were used by John the Baptist. When he was out there in the wilderness preaching the baptism of repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you recall, he was causing kind of a stir. He was getting people stirred up that the Messiah was getting ready to come. That he was making reference to this passage of Scripture. He said, you're going to see the Messiah come in our days. You're going to see him with your own eyes. You're going to see him. And that's what he was preaching. He was telling them the good news, that redemption was coming. And, of course, this was causing quite a stir. And if you recall in the passage in John, gospel, uh, John's, John's gospel, they sent some emissaries from Jerusalem, from the religious leaders, to go out and investigate John and to find out what, what is going on with him, what, what, what is happening out here. But everybody's getting stirred up about this guy. And they went out to him and they began to question him, who are you, what are you doing, and so forth. And immediately they thought, maybe does he claim he's the Messiah? No, he's not the Messiah. Is he, does he think he's Elijah? No, no, does he think he's Jeremiah? Is he some prophet who's come back uh, to do this? And he said, no. And they said, well, give us an answer that we can use to go back to those that sent us. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he made reference to this passage. And he basically he was saying, these words that I just read to you here in Isaiah, I, John, those words are being fulfilled in front of you. And sure enough, the Messiah did appear there with John. And if you recall, John, upon seeing him, there was a sign that God had given to him when the Messiah would come, that a dove would land on the shoulder of the Messiah, and he saw Yeshua coming up, and a dove landed on him. So he knew that was the one. That was the sign that God had given to him. And that's when he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And thus the ministry of Yeshua formally was initiated and started there based on this passage of Scripture. Now, what follows in verse 6 is as it says this, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? 
All flesh is grass, and all the loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, well, that's, that's a nice set of verses. I wonder what that's about. Well, if you read from the Apostle Peter in his letter, he says that was the ministry of the apostles. That the work that they did after the Messiah was resurrected was they were the ones who were doing the calling out. They were calling out to the people about that God had fulfilled his promises. The Redeemer had come, he had done the work of redemption, and that he had been resurrected and that he had ascended um, up into the heavens and was explaining that this mortal life here is temporary at best. I'll tell you how temporary it is. Um, when you see the grass is nice and green, well, that's your mortal life. And the glory of man is like flowers blooming. Uh, now, here we are in this particular summer, and if you come to my backyard, one of the things that you'll see in my backyard is I make an effort to have the grass looking green and the flowers blooming. And it's a delightful place. I love my backyard. I love sitting on my patio uh, out there, not when it's so hot, but I like when it's nice and cool. But I have all of that stuff. You know what? I know there's a day coming. It'll come toward the fall and into the winter. All that grass is going to wither and won't look green anymore. All those flowers, all those blossoms, they'll go away. It's like a cycle. Every year I see it. You know, the grass comes up, the flowers come up, and then it goes away. And it's just like the mortal life. We mortals are here only for a short period of time on this earth. We are an extension of the previous generations. The previous generations aren't around anymore. We, if you're of my age, you've already had children and grandchildren, and you can see the generations that will follow. And they will outlast me. See, their grass is greener than mine. Mine is starting to fade. My flowers are starting to droop, okay? And, and that's what it's talking about, mortal life. Well, if this is mortal life, what, what is it that's real then? Well, what is real is the Word of God. That Those truths are just as true as they were in the day of Adam. They're just as true as they were before in the days of the previous generations. And, and that we can have confidence in what God has said. Because it was before, it is now, and it will be in the future. Those are the truths to it. So when we hold to and believe in those words, we act on those words, guess what? we get to get the same benefit of what the Word of God is. We get to live forever. Our grass doesn't wither. Our flower doesn't fade. Now, the mortal part of us goes away, but the eternal part remains just like the Word of God remains. And if your life has become the Word of God and what God said, you live forever just like the Word of God did and so forth. So 
let's look at the next set of verses in chapter 40. Verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. And behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is a passage that is talking about the second coming of the Messiah. Get yourself up on a high mountain and tell him, Behold, here is your God. And then it says, this is how he comes. He comes with might. He comes with his arm ruling for him. His reward is with him for those that belong to him. And his recompense, his judgments upon his enemies come at the same time as well. Reward and recompense, they all come when the Lord returns the second time. We're talking about the Messiah returning. Who would that affect? What generation would suddenly these words become real? Obviously, it's the last generation. Now, I believe that we are the last generation. I could completely change the topic here and give you a whole lot of reasons why I believe that, but I'm going to stick with the off-tour portion and just suffice it to say I'm convinced that we're the last generation. If that be so, and I believe it is, then these words are about us. These are the words that are going to be fulfilled within our days of our mortal frame, our little green grass and flower that blooms. It, these things are going to happen in our days, in our generation, you know, for it to take place. But in particular, I want you to look at verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs, carry them in the bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So what is that about? Well, you see this last generation that is scattered all over the world? And God's getting ready to come back and judge the whole world. Guess what God says that is going to happen to that last generation. He says he's going to gather us up. It's the fulfillment of the feast of ingathering, Sukkot. It's the fulfillment of that. We, we're going to be gathered up. We're going to be in these temporary huts and booths. We're going to be literally playing out a repeat, if you will, a prophetic repeat of the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt the first time, dealing in Sukkah, and, and we are going to be trusting the Lord as he leads away from all of the judgments that will be happening on the world. Now, there's a whole host, and I do mean a whole host, of many other prophecies that speak to the same situation. And you've heard me relay them and speak to them frequently. Uh, in fact, this message is probably has been the center point of my whole ministry, my public ministry that I've been for my lifetime. The subject to the greater exodus, subject to these verses and what they mean. Um, and 
I am convinced, I am convinced that not only are we the last generation, but we're going to see these things happen. We're going to see the greater exodus, and, and many of us will be a part of it. And there are people who are alive today who are going to see the coming of the Lord with their own eyes. They, they will have the gift of eternal life, just like all the other previous people. But the other previous people, they've been asleep in the Lord. They'll be raised, but then these people who have the gift of eternal life, the grass is still green, the flowers still bloom. They're going to see. They are a very unique group of people. Paul referred to them as, I'm telling you a mystery. And anytime there, he uses the term mystery in the Bible, it's something very, very significant. He said, there is a group of people that are going to be alive at the end. They're going to see the resurrection. They're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They're literally going to see the moment, the twinkling of an eye, when they're changed from mortal to immortal, and they're no longer subject to the judgments of this world or the conditions of this world that we have endured up to this point. Now, the rest of Isaiah 40 uh, goes on to speak of the great things about God and great encouragement that's being given to Israel. Again, this is a very positive part of where Isaiah prophesies. Uh, to it. In fact, in Israel, I can tell you this, that they considered the book of Isaiah the most desirable of the prophets because he's so positive and speaks to the encouragement of, of God and speaks to the encouragement of Israel and our part uh, with God. So that's our portion. We've introduced uh, the Hoftors of Consolation again in the follow-on weeks. We'll look into more and more of it. But the key phrase, comfort, oh, comfort my people, is going to be the start of this, the oldest sermon that we have in the Bible. All right, that's our portion for this week. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hold your finger at verse 14, where our Brit Hadashah teaching will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time once again to study your word and your teaching and your instruction. Father, as we uh, read the words, Lord, of the commandments that you gave to the children of Israel once again this week, Father, I pray that you continue to penetrate our hearts and our minds, Lord, and our spirits uh, with those words. May we live by them. May we be encouraged by them. And may we walk uprightly before you walking in the commandments that you have called us uh, to follow. We thank you, Lord, for all of these blessings. It's in your son, Yeshua. We pray these things. Amen. Our Torah portion this week, Va'etchanan, which is the Moses pleading before the Lord and saying, I pleaded before the Lord to enter into the promised land, yet he was not able to go into the promised land. He was, uh, because of his disbelief, because of him striking the rock, Moses was not allowed to join with that generation that entered in to the promised land. And it begins the, uh, the oration once again of speaking to the sons of Israel before crossing into the promised land and everything that Moses is trying to teach and share with that generation 
before he passes away, reading from the book of the law that is Deuteronomy and preparing them to enter into the promised land. So there's a lot of information repeated for us in Deuteronomy that we've already covered in the Torah. And in this portion, we go back over the uh, reading of the Ten Commandments, the time in which the children of Israel came before Mount Sinai, that mountain that they could not approach, could not touch, and then the voice of God booming from the mountain speaks the Ten Commandments and those words. And those uh, that entire passage is repeated for us in our Torah portion here in Deuteronomy that is a repetition of what was given before in Exodus chapter 20. So there's a lot of things to to sort of look and to draw out from repeating those words. Again, when we go to the New Testament, we're going to try to draw out some of those same principles. And so if we're just talking about the Ten Commandments, we could, we already kind of covered some of the, those words in that instruction as it was given uh, back when we were doing the Brit Hadashah portion for Exodus chapter 20, the portion of Yithro. What we have, though, is this repetition that Moses is speaking always trying to hammer home some of these principles. And so hopefully we can draw some of those things out here in the New Testament for this portion. I've turned us to Hebrews chapter 12. There's a passage here that speaks specifically about the children of Israel coming to the mountain, what they heard and and, and the fear that they had in hearing those words. And also there's a little passage here uh, that I want to relate also that uh, relates to the namesake of this Torah portion, Va'etanon, and I pleaded, and Moses pleading for his chance to go into the promised land. So beginning at verse 14 of Hebrews 12, it says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, there's maybe this is kind of an unfair comparison, and there's enough difference here that maybe I shouldn't draw this comparison, but I'm going to anyways. That Esau, after his sin, he pleaded to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. There was no place for repentance, and with great tears he did not receive the blessing. In relation to our Torah portion, Moses... His sin is the fact that when he struck the rock, that he might have ple- he pleaded with the Lord, but because of his unbelief, because of his sin, he did not get to go into the promised land. In the same way, we need to learn from the mistake. We can learn from the mistake of Esau. Yeah, don't sell your birthright for a single morsel of food. Not a good plan. But Moses also follow the Lord. Believe in him. Do what he has said, what, exactly what he said. When he says, take the rod, go speak to the rock, don't go to the rock and hit the rock with the rod. That's not, that's obviously doing something that you're not supposed to do. So we are to learn these mistakes. And so whenever we hear this Moses pleading before the Lord, the blessing of Moses, of course, is that the Lord still took him up on a mountain and allowed him to see the promised land to see the, 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 what the land looked like and that it was exceedingly great. And even God told him and showed, told him, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Even though the promised land was to the west, he told him to look everywhere because God also showed Moses spiritually what the greater promised land, what the kingdom would be when we're talking about all the land that was promised to Abraham and to his sons, that greater 
future kingdom that extends all the way from the Nile River to the River Euphrates and, all, and, and north and south and much larger than the specific place of the land of Canaan or what modern-day Israel is today. And so Moses still got to see those things, but even with his prayer, his repentance, he did not receive those things. Everyone falls short. Be careful lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And even Moses, even the great man that he was, fell short of being able to go into the promised land and follow truly what the Lord has said. Let's continue on. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that be burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet that the vo- and the voice of words so that those that heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling but you have come to Mount Zion And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Yeshua, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is spelling all of these things out of being brought to the mountain. That directly relates to the story of our Torah portion here. And that when we heard these things and and, and when we were when God was giving his covenant at that point in time, these thunder and this sound and this this, this booming thing caused fear inside of us that we didn't we, we feared for what God was saying and what was happening. And I've loved to teach all the times about the children of Israel that originally God, those words that were coming from the mountain that God, I don't believe, was done speaking. The same voice that created the world was speaking to the children of Israel and was writing his commandments upon their hearts. And he was making covenant with them in their hearts by that voice. Look, if God's voice has the power to create the world, to say earth and there's earth and say, you know, light and here's light. And he is there to say, you know, this is what shall be created, created and that's what is created. That's the power of God's voice to do those things. Then if the people heard God's voice. From that mountain, what kind of change or creation could be put inside of them when they were coming into covenant with God? That same voice that created the world can fundamentally, scientifically, physiologically change the hearts of the people, the ears that they heard. and There's a change that is taking place in the people that heard that voice. That's why the children of Israel are a peculiar people. Who else has ever heard the voice of God and lived? Well, the children of Israel did. Now, there was that generation, that most of that generation over the age of 20, they didn't survive into the promised land, but they were there. They heard the voice and they lived. And then anybody under 20 might have heard that. And it's like, I, I guarantee if you were 15 years old at the time uh, and you heard the voice of God, that might have impacted your life. You might remember that, uh, that instance. You're not going to forget that one anytime soon. And so if some 15-year-old at the base of Mount Sinai, uh, then, you know, 40 years later, you know, at 55, he's getting to go into the promised land with his own family. And he has the testimony of hearing the voice of God and living. Who else has ever done that? What a peculiar people the children of Israel are, in fact. I think it's possible that when God spoke that there was a, something written into the DNA of the children of Israel, 
scientifically, maybe we could catch up to this at some point in time. But anyone who has ever been a descendant of those people, that something in that voice impacted their life in their heart and that it circumcised into their hearts the word of God. Now, the children of Israel at the time, they rejected the covenant. That generation rejected the covenant. And so through sins and rebellions and all kinds of other things, the sin of the golden calf, that the people wanted something physical to see rather than just this spiritual covenant inside their heart. So they made a golden calf and that didn't go very well for them. But then God then commands Moses to build a tabernacle or a tent for him to dwell amongst the camp. Now, this might be a controversial opinion, but I actually believe that the tabernacle was actually the plan B of God wanting to dwell inside the hearts of his people. Not inside a tent and a tabernacle within the camp, but originally in the hearts of the people. But the children of Israel, they were too young, too spiritually mature. They, they, they did not know what was truly happening. And that at the end of the age, God is going to spiritually put himself in the hearts of his people. And that's why we, in the, in the course of the New Covenant, I've always loved the fact that what we teach our children to come into faith, in their Christian faith, of believing in Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, we say, pray to the Lord and invite him into your heart. Invite God to dwell in your heart. You know, plan A, what God originally intended for the children of Israel. Invite him into your heart. And that now is the tabernacle by which he dwells. Not one of fabric and textiles and gold and silver in the wilderness. And not one of marble and stone and gold and, and bricks and mortar in Jerusalem. But in here is where God dwells. We're starting to get back to the way God originally intended it to be for him to dwell inside of us. So, I mean, that's a theory that the tabernacle being plan B, you know, and we know that throughout history, God has a plan and a purpose and its will, his will is executed through all of this. But let's not get lost on the fact that God desires to dwell in our hearts amongst the people, within the people. That's where God desires to dwell. His character is clear that that's what he wants to do with his creation. And so then here, the writer of Hebrews is spelling this out that it's like, you know, we, we've come to Mount Sinai, the city of the living God, and we're coming to the heavenly Jerusalem. He's taking it a, a spiritual uh, turn here, that the fact that we as believers in God, that yes, we, we, we didn't have to go to a mountain and hear this trembling and, this, and the fearful thunderings coming from the mountain like the children of Israel did. But however, the way I believe it or interpret it is that that still impacted us to get to the where we are now as believers in Yeshua the Messiah, in, whether you're in the first century or in modern times now, that that belief and that following of God now gives us a spiritual inheritance that is spiritually greater than the physical inheritance that the children of Israel received. But we have both, the physical and the spiritual, to relate to, to understand that, yeah, when we go to the kingdom, it will be like the children of Israel receiving the promised land. It'll, there's a similarity there, and we, being physical creatures, sometimes need that physical example, that contour, that, uh, that, that ensign, the, the, that sign to follow, to, uh, so that we might understand it. It's very hard to learn spiritual principles, but God gives us the physical to teach us about the spiritual principles. And so that's, you know, he gives us both the spiritual and the physical so that we might learn truly what it is to be followers of God.
So here's a passage right here talking about, again, the mountain, the thunderings, and, and, and all of those things that the children of Israel experienced at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, in our Torah portion also includes Deuteronomy chapter 6, which, of course, is the uh, the giving of the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and the greatest commandment as well. So with that being in our Torah portion, let us turn now to Mark chapter 12, once again to the passage in which God, uh, the Messiah was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Now all of the synoptic gospels uh, do cover this, uh, cover this story in Matthew 22, also in Luke chapter 10. But I want to go to Mark chapter 12, where I kind of like the way that this is um, given here by in this particular gospel. And I like the conclusion that's drawn uh, here out of this one as opposed to the others. So beginning at verse 28, it says this, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, this is the you know Messiah speaking to the disciples and amongst the people, perceiving that he had answered them well, they asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Or a lot of translations say the greatest commandment. Yeshua answers them and says, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this, You shall love your neighbors as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What an amazing testimony of the scribe saying those words. Now, it's not that the scribe was sitting there and grading the Messiah, but what he is, is he, he was speaking out of the abundance of his heart, knowing, yes, truly, I mean, you're right. I mean, those are the greatest things. You, you can forget about the animal sacrifices. You can forget about the altar service and, and, and those things. These are the great things. These, these are greater than all of those. They're more To love one's neighbor is more than all of the burnt offerings, because even the, the Messiah said earlier than this, <coughs> excuse me, he said, that, gee, if you're at the altar and you are uh, offering an altar, but then you remember that you have ought with your neighbor or a neighbor has ought with you, leave your offering at the altar and go deal with the thing that's going on with your neighbor. Those things need to be taken care of first. Those are first and foremost. I almost like the translation here that says that this is the first of the commandments, not necessarily the greatest of the commandments. Because there's an order of operations here as to the following of the commandments of God. You can sit here and say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the, the festivals of God, the appointed times. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to bring all these offerings. But what's the point of doing any of those things if you don't first love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What's the point? <laughs> you can do all those things and it's like, oh, yeah, after I do that, then I'll get around to uh, loving God. <laughs> that's completely out of order in the same way that it's like all of these things about like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to have all these different interactions with my neighbor, but it's like, I'll, I'll get around to loving my neighbor eventually. No, you don't do anything with your neighbor for your neighbor within your community, unless you first love your neighbor. And then it's very impossible. Then the whole thing is the first is loving God, then loving your neighbor. 
You know, there's an order of operations here. So one, yes, we're talking about the greatest commandment. (laughs) But my New King James translation right here says, these are the first of the commandments. I kind of like that, actually. Because you need to do these things rightly and in order. And even the scribe said of these things. Now listen to what the Messiah said of this scribe. When Yeshua saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. So there were certain questions and people were were, were saying and, and asking questions amongst this thing. But when this exchange happened between this scribe and said, "You're Oh my gosh, you're right. Nothing is greater than to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our understanding, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. You are, you're right. And Yeshua said, yeah, and you've answered wisely. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Hmm. Everybody at that point took a step back and they're like, wow. God, is, what a profound statement to say. When all of us are looking for the kingdom of God, the establishment of God's kingdom on this earth what wait how do we get to the kingdom well the lord said there's a guy that right here that said it's so true love him with all heart soul mind strength understanding soul and then love your neighbors as yourself it's greater than all the burnt offerings and that's how we get to the kingdom that's the understanding we need to be not far off from the kingdom makes you stop and think how do we bring about the kingdom here on earth how does that kingdom come how does how, how do we how do we get to that place that point that goal the goal is that we have our, our sights set on to get to the kingdom of god it starts with this understanding the first and the greatest of the commandments it's almost like the keeping of the commandments is that step in that stage toward getting to the kingdom this is one of those arguments that you might say, uh, are we going to keep the commandments of Torah? Is it going to be valid in the kingdom? Uh, yeah, because the steps to get to the kingdom starts with keeping the first of the commandments. That's how we get to the kingdom. That's how we establish the kingdom. And that's how in the hearts of the people receiving the law written onto your heart, walking uprightly before the Lord, obeying him is how you become a citizen of the kingdom. That's the direction we're going. Even if the kingdom, if, even if the physical kingdom has not been established yet here on earth, the spiritual kingdom resides in our hearts, in the ways that we live, in the ways that we walk by following the commandments of God. That's how the kingdom comes. So that's why, I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road here. This is where the, the, the first, this is the beginning of obedience. This is the beginning of understanding how we must live, how we must walk as believers in God. It starts here with the first of the commandments. It's not just even that this is the first of the commandments that you follow, but even the order by which the commandment is given is the order by which you follow the commandments. Uh, you, you may have heard me teach this before, but when, you, when it says, love Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and then with all of your might or strength, or with all of your mind and strength, or all of your strength and mind, every time in the Gospels it actually says that those last two a little bit different, that do you think that there's an order by which those things are spoken? That when we love God, we should love God first with our heart, then with our soul, then our mind and our strength can come later. I actually believe that that is the order of things. And that takes it to, again, that spiritual level. We might think that, you know, physically we have to love the Lord. 
And I've given this example before that it's like a husband who loves his wife. How husbands, how do you show love to your wife? Can you show love to your wife with all of your strength? Yes, you can. All the acts of service that you can do around the house from taking out the trash to mowing the lawn to to, to working and laboring to bring about, you know, the, the means to support the household. And you can love your wife with all of your strength and with all of your body and with all of your might by doing things that way. Is that the best way that you can love your wife? It's necessary, yes, but it's not the best way. And it's not the way that you should do so first. Because even if a guy does all of those things, that's not going to stop a wife from coming to him at some point and just saying, man, I'm just not feeling loved. And he's like, what do you mean you don't feel loved? I'm doing all these things. I mowed the yard. I took the trash out. Yeah, but I'm just not, I'm just, I'm just not feeling it. Well, that's because a woman doesn't want a guy to come and say, I love you with all of my might. Or you can't say, I love you with all of my mind. I know how much, I, I know that it's wonderful that we're married together. And I love you with all of my mind. And it's great that we're together. And I know this. It's logically, it, may, it logically makes sense that we should be married and we should raise our kids. And these things are good, right? Is that what she wants to hear? No. She wants to hear that love come from the innermost being. She wants to hear that love come from within, within one's heart coming from the soul and say, honey, I love you with all of my heart. Those other things come later. Yeah, the logic makes sense. The taking out the trash, yeah, you better get, you better do that to take care of your family. But what she really wants to hear is, I love you with all of my heart. From my innermost being, from deep down into my soul, you are my soulmate. And that's the love that I have for you. That's what a wife really wants to hear. That's also what God wants to hear from his people that we should love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, from deep within, is how we have to show love to the Lord. The order of operations is important. And so then, we, 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 if we are following these things in order, things take a spiritual turn. This is where, we have to, where the connection between us and God and believing in Him has to be an emotional connection. Not just a physical one, not just going through the motions. and it's just It doesn't work that way. Because there's been plenty of people that come in, they go to church, they put money in the offering plate, they go, they do, they do everything that they're supposed to do, going through the motions as a good Christian, yet the Lord doesn't know them. They don't have a relationship with the Lord. They aren't spiritually fed or encouraged by, by walking those things out because they don't have the emotional, heartfelt, soul tie to God, their God who they are following and worshiping and the actions are coming first before the love for the Lord, which comes first, which is way the order it's supposed to be. That's why, again, the change has to happen within. Then the physical actions follow. You can't just go through the motions and, and expect to be counted up and to be drawn up with the children of Israel. Because all the people that died and fell in the wilderness still went through the Dead Sea, still was delivered by, from Egypt. And they went through the motions and they went to Mount Sinai and they did and they were a part of all those things. But did the emotional connection be made in their hearts to the God that saved them? No, they rejected the land. They rejected the gift, the inheritance. They rejected the covenant that God was trying to give to them because their hearts weren't in it. Their hearts weren't ready. Their hearts were hard. Couldn't, God couldn't chip away at the hardness of their heart to, to try and create a tabernacle to dwell in there. It's a little too rough. God didn't want to dwell in a cave of rock. He wants to dwell in a heart of flesh that's, that's, that's moldable, that's shapeable, that, that, that's soft. 
in their emotion, in their action, in, in, in everything that they do and they say. That's what it is to have a soft heart. One that God's Spirit can reside in and one where God can dwell and operate in. Not just not a heart of stone, not a spiritually immature heart that still goes following after things of the world and things of idols and things like that. That is where God wants to dwell. And that is what God was trying to do in the hearts of the children of Israel. But we, in modern times, have them as an example as to what not to do. So now let us learn, and let us learn from these words here, on what we are to do. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Soften your heart to receive Him. And if you do so, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. What a wonderful thing that is. What a wonderful place. That, 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 the goal of Scripture, that where, where we're trying to get to. Anyone who's ever talking about the return of the Lord and, and wanting to, we're trying to get to the kingdom. We, the tribulation, we, we don't want to do the tribulation. If the, if the Lord needs the world to go through tribulation, well, then that, that's the Lord's call and that's the Lord's judgment on that. But ultimately, our goal isn't the tribulation. Our goal is the kingdom. So let's get to the kingdom. Let's make the kingdom happen. And in fact, there are things we can do and things we can believe and ways that we can walk today that brings us closer to the kingdom without anything else having to happen in the world. And that's the hearts of the people being turned to him, softened and following to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves is the path to bring about the kingdom. What a blessing that is. Look, God... <coughs> Here's the other thing about all, all this passage of Scripture, talking about when, when God brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai to do all of this. And this is reiterated for us in our Torah portion for this week as well. That God chose us. God chose the children of Israel as the people that He was going to make this example of. We didn't choose Him. We can sit here and we can say, now, now, he chose us first. Now, it is our responsibility to respond in kind for him to, to for, for us to respond in kind to, to the Lord, to receive that covenant, to receive that relationship. But first and foremost, God chose the children of Israel. Some people might stand back and say, man, children of Israel, they really screwed up things back there. Why in the world would God choose them? Well, because they actually made a fantastic example for us to follow, for us to learn by, so that then we can see the example of, the, of Israel being a kingdom of priests, so that then their testimony can extend to all peoples, all nations, tribes, and tongues, and that we have a kingdom of priests to see the physical example on what the path is to reach God and reach His kingdom. That's what Israel stands for. To be a kingdom of priests as an example, mediators between God and man, God and the nations. And so that we have the path and the means and the physical example to learn from how to get to the kingdom. That's why God chose them as a peculiar people, a peculiar treasure. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. One of my favorite parables that, uh, that Yeshua ever spoke he told this story here in uh, reading verse 1 in Matthew chapter 22. It says this, Yeshua answered and spoke them again in parables and saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his ser servants, 
treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but, there are, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you can find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how is it that you have come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. This is, a, this is an incredible, uh, incredible parallel for every single person who ever hears it. Who are you in this parable? Who are you? What role do you play in this parable? Are you the king who, inv- who created the feast? No, of course not. That's God. God is creating the kingdom. He is the king. He's the one who's establishing the marriage. The marriage of his son. Are you God's son? No, no, that's Yeshua. <laughs> that's Yeshua that he's planning, this marriage of a son. This is what the kingdom is. It's going to be the marriage of the son of God. And then let's get all the invited guests. Let's bring them all in. Now, are you the person that was invited, but you came up with some lousy excuse as to not come? Oh, I got too many things to do. I got a, got a farm here. I got, I got all these great possessions over here. I'm not going to come to that feast that you call the kingdom because I got too many other great things here. <laughs> Are you one of the truly evil people of the kingdom that killed the messengers that brought the invitation? You're invited to a party and you say, I don't want to go so much that I'm even going to treat you spitefully and I'm going to kill you. Those are the people that fall into judgment. Those are the people that are falling into judgment right now, here and now, in this world that we live in, in modern times. If you ever see a group of people that are falling into judgment, I'm not, I'm not the judge. I'm not going to say this for sure. But, you know, those might be the people fulfilling that part of the parable. The ones who truly have rejected God and his invitation to the kingdom. Now, there's a great many of us, actually, what we are is we're the ones that are we're on the highways and byways and perhaps weren't originally invited to the feast. But when the king says, my feast will be filled, then the servants go out and they gather anyone, good, bad. They go to the highways, the byways, the leper colonies, the, wherever they can go to find so that that feast might be filled with guests. That's the way God's going to save the rest of the world. All kinds of people are going to get caught up into the invitation, into the kingdom, because ones that were originally invited rejected it, but the ones that that, that the Lord has been kind to, show mercy to, wherever they might be in life, they get to come into the feast. And then even after that, and the king goes to then see, and then even if somebody was invited and they're on their way in, yet they rejected the wedding garment, they didn't get dressed up for appropriate for the occasion, they didn't prepare themselves physically adorned, ready for the, the wedding. And the king's like, no, no, you're still not ready for the wedding. You're still not ready for the kingdom. And bind them up, cast them away. Where do you fall into that parable? Which one are you? Let me give you the, the short answer. Let me give you the, the, the cheat sheet. What you, The person you should be in that parable is the servants of the king. The one who is extending the invitation to all 
who are invited. That's the role of Israel. That's the role of the kingdom of priests, the servants of the king that go and issue the invitation. That's the role that we should be playing as believers, as followers of God. Because, and, and, and you know what? We're going to run into all kinds of people in the course of that invitation. We might be a messenger that is sent to one place and those people just reject it. You, you, you can sit there and you can, you can cry out, follow the Lord, believe in him, follow me. Let's go to the kingdom. And they just reject it. They come up with every other excuse to not come. Or you might end up going to a place and where you're treated scornfully and hatefully. And then you're hated for going in with that message. And, they just do, and, and that rejection is even greater. For the, Bless the servants that have to go into that place and be treated such a way when you're simply trying to issue the invitation to the kingdom. And then others, sometimes that you're the ones at the end where it's all like, you know what? The, the ones I'm, I'm, I called certain prophets and certain servants to go speak to this groups of people, and I still don't have a full feast. So you know what? All these other servants, you go there, go there, go there, go there, go everywhere and find the people, wherever they might be, whether it's in the ash heap or whether it's in another nation or whether they look differently, smell differently, whether they're, they're leprous and have been rejected by society otherwise, and go find those people. Be the servants of the king that bring them in. Because God chose them. Be the servant that God chose to serve him. And or if if you're not that, then be the people that accepts the invitation that it was chosen by the king, chosen by God for you to be in the kingdom. That That is the call that we need to fulfill and understand. Look, this is a choice by God. If God is issuing that invitation, if God chooses you, then follow him. Choose him. Don't be the ones that reject the invitation. Israel was a chosen people. God, God, God chose them. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah, that's the people that were in the ash heap, not doing anything, out in the byways in total darkness and brought into the wondrous, marvelous light of a wedding feast. That's how he chooses us. Verse 10, for once we're not, we were not a people, but now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. For all the people that are struggling in life, going through life, dealing with every single one of these things, to, 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 to be not a people, to not have a nation, to not have an identity. And that's what so many people are in the world. They have no identity. But then when a messenger of the king, when a servant of the king, a servant of the God of Israel goes and says, you are welcome into this family. I will give you a garment that you will wear. I will give you an identity and a heritage for you to live by. And I will give you a family. You were once not a people, but when you walk in and you believe in God and you follow his commandments and his words and when you come into this kingdom, you are now a people with a nation, with a heritage, with an inheritance, with a blessing, with a king, with a father, with, 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 with anything that you ever didn't have before. You didn't have mercy. You didn't have grace. You didn't have a family. And now you have all of it because you've accepted the invitation, because you have been chosen by the Lord to, do, to, 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 to receive this inheritance, to receive this blessing. 
John chapter 15 says this at verse 16. It says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command you that you love one another. Simple as that. I can't say it any more simply. This is the call to the servants that he has chosen to go about and bring the kingdom to the people. Or bring the people to the kingdom, whichever way you, you want to look at that. And he says, I chose you and that you should go and bear good fruit. Go live by my spirit. Bear the fruits of the spirit. That's how you bring about these things on earth. And very simply spells out these things I command you that you love one another. It's as simple as that. The commandment of love. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. If you do those things, you can be the servant of God. You can be the servant of the kingdom. And you can be in the role in that parable that is the one that goes and is the servant of the king and not the one who has opportunity to reject the king and his invitation. That is the role. That's what we must do. And that's how we must fulfill our destiny as the people of God, as the chosen people, as the sons of the living God, as the children of Israel, not by heritage, but by adoption, and that it don't matter what who your mommy and daddy were, it don't matter what the color of your skin is, you are welcome into this family by the adoption of sons with equal rights and shares to the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Accept the invitation, because God chose you. Reciprocate. RSVP to that wedding and to that kingdom. And I look forward that we can all be there in the kingdom. And what a great and glorious and marvelous day that will be. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching, this instruction. Father, we thank you for choosing us from among all peoples. For looking upon us, Lord, and even in our sin and even in our, our, our mistakes that we've made as a people, Father, that still you show kindness and mercy to a thousand generations. Lord, there hasn't even been a thousand generations recorded yet. And so, Father, your mercies abound to us, even in this place and even to this, these modern times. Father, may we accept the call. May we serve your name and your kingdom. May we be the messengers, Lord, that bring that message of salvation to the people who need to hear it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We accept this invitation, Lord, and we... Uh, pray, Lord, that you would just lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit and all be bearers of good fruit and all the things that we do and showing love to those, even those that hate us, Lord, so that we might fulfill this role in this call. We bless you and we thank you on this day. We thank you for the Sabbath. I pray a special rest upon everyone this uh, Sabbath for this week. We bless you and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Vayasim lecha 
lecha shalom. B'shem Yeshua Hamashiach, sarcha shalom, shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom. <laughs>